So good morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but this is my first time up preaching under quarantine. Uh, feels a little awkward. Uh, I'm not quite sure if I like it more with people here being able to be responsive or if I appreciate the fact that there's not eyes on me and I don't know when people are falling asleep uh, while I am up here. Uh, But again, in case you don't know me, my name is Pastor Eric. I get to work primarily with our students here at Faith. And one of the things that I miss most uh, and have missed most about this season, besides seeing all of your wonderful, wonderful faces here in church, uh, is hockey. Now, if you don't know this, I am a bit of a sports fan. Uh, I enjoy all sports, but in particular, I really enjoy hockey. Uh, and it probably wouldn't take you too long to figure this out if you ever had the opportunity to come visit me in my office. I have a little Red Wings throw rug. I have uh, a Red Wings mouse pad. The, desk, the background on my computer is a Red Wings logo. I have some other paraphernalia. I I have some, uh, an old hockey stick uh, in my office. Uh, if you ever came to visit me at my home, you'd see I have a signed Red Wings jersey uh, up on display as, long as, as well as some other like memorabilia stuff. I have like an, a popcorn air popper that's shaped like the Stanley Cup uh, that I kind of have up on display. I have uh, a collection, a plethora of old hockey sticks, which I plan to cut down and turn into a hockey stick coffee table for my man cave one day. Um, Uh, I also have my hockey equipment, my pads. You got the padded shorts, the shin guards, elbow pads, gloves, helmets, skates, uh, all that jazz. But of course, that has all been sitting idly by over the past two and a half months. But once upon a time, I did not have all of my hockey pads. In fact, I used to play on ice without it, whether it was pond hockey or street hockey with friends. Uh, And actually, when I worked at camp, we played a game called broomball. And broomball, in case you're unfamiliar with it, you could almost think of it like boot hockey. It's a little bit different. You play with a ball that has the same texture and feel of a soccer ball, but it's a little bit bigger than a softball. Uh, And you play with these sticks that, instead of like a hockey stick with a curve at the end, it has this like vulcanized rubber, like the same thing that a hockey puck is made of, uh, but kind of has this weird like blade blunt object at the end. But the goal of broomball is the same as hockey. It's to try to get the ball into the net past the goalie to score. Uh, and of course, you're playing on what my, dad's, my dad describes as the hardest surface known to man. Now, one of the reasons that broomball is such a great game at camp is it's a great equalizer, right? You don't have, if you were to play hockey, you would have some people who could skate well and some who maybe looked like they were about to break their ankles. Uh, if you're playing hockey, you have the curved stick and the different curves uh, that some people would really know how to fire in a wrist shot uh, and other people uh, might not know exactly how to hold the stick. But broomball, it's a great equalizer. Everybody's on boots, everybody's slipping, and when everybody's slipping, everybody is falling. And as you lose your balance and you would start to go down, you would brace yourself because you just, you knew it was going to hurt, whether it be your elbow or your hip or your knee. Uh, It was kind of like Bruce City. Well, one time we had a retreat group up at camp and one of their students had skates, uh, which meant they were skating circles around us. And my buddy Ben had seen some skates in one of the corners of the storage room Uh, storage rooms at camp, and he said, there there were some hockey skates in there. I'm going to go get them. And I was like, I don't remember seeing hockey skates. Uh, And he came out, uh, and he had this pair of skates on. Uh, And you could tell he was a little bit rusty, but after a couple minutes, he started to get his confidence back. Uh, And as he would skate, he would start to get more into that aggressive forward lean. And every time he would do that, he would fall flat on his face and go sliding across the ice. I thought it was hilarious, uh, in part because what he didn't realize, and I did from a quick glance, is that what the skates he grabbed 
were not hockey skates. They were, in fact, figure skates. And figure skates have what's called a toe pick in the front of the blade, which is used uh, to grip into the ice to do jumps. Uh, like I said, I thought it was hilarious. It took him about 10 minutes before he finally like, looked at a split and was like, what is this on the front of his toe? Now, if you can contrast that experience with Broomball and Ben having figure skates instead of hockey skates, uh, we actually at one point got uh, the full hockey gear because we were invited by some friends to go play at an actual hockey rink uh, inside. And I distinctly remember the first time being in full pads and I was skating, I lost my balance. Uh, one of the things we didn't know when we got all this equipment was when you get brand new ice skates, you need to have them sharpened. Uh, and so our skates were not the sharpest and I went and I started to fall and I was bracing from that experience with broomball ready for that pain to come shooting through my elbow uh, when instead I landed it felt like nothing it felt like I was jumping on the bed in fact I'm pretty sure I got up and fell down again just because I could having the right equipment can make all the difference in the world. Now, as followers of Jesus, we want to make sure that we are equipped to face the challenges that life throws at us. There's nothing enjoyable about falling on ice without the right equipment. We don't want to fall victim to the brokenness that surrounds us. We want our faith to make a difference for good in our lives and live our lives in a way that this life prepares us for the next one. But sometimes I feel like we can maybe feel like we're out there living life the same way it feels when we're out there playing broomball in no pads. Uh, fear of falling on the ice, getting banged around, and in the midst of it, we sometimes are left wondering if that's all that life has to offer. Now through this series, we're hoping to share the good news that yes, it is possible to live life like we're in full pads. Uh, for this series, we've been looking how Peter articulates this in 2 Peter chapter 1, that yes, God has equipped us. He's given us everything we need to live a godly life and follow Jesus well. And Peter very clearly articulates that not only God, has God equipped us, but that he's equipped us so that we can escape the world's corruption, as verse 4 says, that comes from sin and evil desires. Now, if you find yourself asking, well, exactly how does this all work? Well, Peter goes on to elaborate exactly what and how that looks in verses 5 through 7. This is what he writes. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Peter is telling us to strive to add this list of virtues to our faith and to cultivate these things in our life because these are the, the how by which God equips us to live a godly life. So for this series of what we've been doing, we've been going through this list. We've been unpacking these virtues, uh, seeking to better understand each of these virtues that Peter lists out. Uh, and then we've been exploring what can we do to nurture and to cultivate and to grow that virtue in our own lives that we can add it to our tool belts uh, of our faith to be better equipped for life as followers of Jesus. Now, of these seven virtues that Peter has listed out, so far we've covered the first 
four. Uh, so now we're just over the halfway point. We're on the downhill slope of the series, uh, and we're looking at the virtue of godliness this week. Now, I think this series in particular ties in really well to the culmination of the Confirmation Discipleship Program for these students that you saw earlier in the service. For those of you who are unfamiliar with exactly how confirmation works uh, for our students, it's a two-year commitment that they make of intentional, in-depth study of God's Word. On Sundays, our seventh, the seventh and eighth grade students, uh, they meet primarily with a Amelia, Lauren, Brian, and John, with myself and a few other guests making appearances to teach, uh, and of course, together with some of their other peers together for class time. Uh, but these students also made a commitment beyond just that scheduled time on Sunday mornings during the second service. Uh, they made a commitment to what we like to refer to as growth activities. And these are growth activities model spiritual disciplines that are tried and true in the Christian faith. They've done journal entries in their workbooks where they reflect on a small reading of scripture to help uh, cu cultivate a daily de devotional practice. Uh, they've worked on memorizing scripture and embedding it in their hearts. They've taken sermon notes to listen to other teaching. Uh, they've and joined in in serving opportunities, both as a group uh, and with the larger church. Uh, and then, of course, we've had some retreats and other fun activities for them to connect. Now, they've committed to this over the past two years, and each year they've journeyed through a different testament of the Bible. Last year, our eighth graders, as seventh graders, journeyed through the New Testament. This year, with this year's seventh graders, they've journeyed through the Old Testament. Now, the Covenant Book of Worship articulates the purpose of confirmation this way. It says, A major focus during the middle school and adolescent years is learning to think for oneself and developing one's own identity. The opportunity to engage in a systematic exploration of God and his word during this time of transition from childhood to adolescence is significant. Now, if this sounds a little bit like leaning into that and cultivating that virtue of knowledge, it's because to a degree it is. But as Pastor Mike shared with us just a few weeks ago when he talked about knowledge, we can have knowledge and not apply it. We can have knowledge, uh, but not uh, knowledge about something, but also not really believe. Well, and while having an academic knowledge, a book knowledge is important, the type of knowledge that Peter is talking about here is relational. Now, in thinking about this virtue of godliness that Peter talks about, it might be tempting to quickly associate godliness with the old adage, the old mantra, cleanliness is next to godliness. And maybe if you're a parent, uh, if you've ever been a parent of kids and teenagers, maybe you're hoping that I'm gonna, really going to lean into this. And you're thinking, man, my kid, you pull your kids in close, they need to hear this. Uh, so let me address it just shortly. Yes, the Old Testament does have significant laws about clean versus unclean, uh, but spoiler alert, none of those are about cleaning your room. Uh, and perhaps early on uh, for early Christians, Peter and some of the other Jewish followers of Jesus might have he equated godliness with cleanliness uh, based on these Jewish laws, but they also realized that these Old Testament laws served as a barrier uh, to the gospel. And we see that broken down in Acts 10. So that's not really what Peter is talking about here when he references godliness. And for me, that's probably a good thing uh, because if that were really true, that cleanliness were next to godliness, me and most of the youth pastors that I know would probably be looking for new jobs if you l ever looked in our offices. So sorry, parents, uh, we're not going to be leaning into cleanliness, but I will give you this. Even so, kids, 
kids, make sure you shower and clean up your room every once in a while. So, what exactly is Peter talking about when he talks about godliness here? In one of the resources I was digging into, the author looks at Enoch as an early example in the Bible. Now, Enoch is not one of those famous Old Testament characters that makes the Sunday school classrooms of our youth growing up, that makes the flannel boards like David and Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, in fact, Enoch is only mentioned briefly in passing in Genesis chapter 5. He's in a midst uh, a list of genealogy that brings us from Adam to Noah. And in this list of genealogy, you have a name and how long they lived and who their kids were and write down the list. Uh, but in that list, Enoch stands out. He's the only one who gets a little extra notation besides just his age and who his kids were. In two verses about Enoch, it articulates twice that Enoch walked faithfully with God. He did it well enough to note it and for it to be noted twice for it to be repeated. Uh, it implies that he had an intimate relationship to God, a devotion, and no, not those things I'm talking about in the morning or evening, but a devotion as in a loyalty and love towards God. Enoch reflected a personal attitude towards God that resulted in actions that were pleasing to God, just the action being simple enough to be noted here. So more simply put, when we're talking about godliness, we could define godliness as devotion, in action. The love and loyalty towards God calls us to a point of action, to live a life that pleases God by striving to become more like God, more like Jesus every day in our thoughts, in our words, and our actions. Now, when we do this, we do this, and we do this right, people don't just see us, they see God through us. When we grow in the virtue of godliness, we become a mirror reflecting not ourselves, but Jesus to others. Now, this type of emulation happens in culture all around us, right? When we think, uh, we might not think of it, but anytime we see a biopic movie about a famous historical figure, these actors and actresses who really nail it, who really go after it, uh, they strive to to become as best they can that historical person that they are playing. They will tirelessly research uh, that person's life. They will read uh, diaries and biographies, and they will, if that person trained, they will train like that person trained. If that person took uh, certain classes, they will take those classes. Uh, and on and on. This, this is how you become like someone. You study everything about them, uh, and then you emulate them. But one of the most jaw-dropping examples that I have ever seen comes not from Hollywood, where you have uh, multiple takes and you have hours and hours in the makeup chair to get your look just right, uh, but it comes from the hardwood of the basketball court. Now, growing up as an elementary school-aged kid in the 90s in the Chicago area, you could not help but be familiar with the Chicago Bulls. Uh, and one player in particular on the team, his name was Michael Jordan. Now, every time we would go out to play basketball, it became an argument about who got to be MJ. I think it got to the point where we basically just had an entire team of Michael Jordans. Uh, in the driveway, you would attempt to recreate those buzzer-beating moments. Uh, key shots, you count on the buzzer. Three, two, one. And then, of course, if it didn't go in, you'd come up with an excuse of, like, why the clock had to stop or be restarted. There was a timeout that you couldn't hear because of crowd noise. There was a foul. Uh, there was a clock mis misfunction where the clock didn't actually start. Now, Michael's 
his clout went well beyond the Chicagoland area. Even being here in Detroit, uh, if you were a fan of the Bad Boy Pistons, you probably still knew who Michael Jordan was. Uh, and even being here in Detroit, perhaps you maybe remember some of the commercials that he was in that ran nationally. The McDonald's commercial uh, with Michael and Larry Bird calling shots with nothing but net and each shot getting more and more ridiculous. Or maybe you might remember the very short-lived cartoon called The Pro Stars, which featured, featured a superhero, super athlete team, which consisted of Michael Jordan alongside Bo Jackson and Wayne Gretzky. Or maybe you remember the Gatorade commercial with this catchy jingle. Sometimes I dream that he is me. Got to see that's how I dream to be. commercial pretty much summed that up what it was like growing up in the 90s. If you grew up as a basketball, in the fan, a basketball fan in the 90s, odds are you wanted to be like Mike. Now, there was another kid who was a few years older than me who also grew up watching Michael Jordan. Now, most of the older generation of current NBA players uh, would have been old enough uh, or they would have been just young enough, but also old enough to remember who Michael was. And they'll probably reference him as an influence. But there's one player in particular who mirrors Michael by far better than anybody else. Uh, he was given some natural skills, uh, but he also worked hard to cultivate them, uh, studying Michael as a primary influence. And his name was Kobe Bryant. Now, in an interview with an ESPN reporter, Kobe articulated that he couldn't give Air Jordan enough credit. Uh, here's what Kobe said. He said, because as a kid growing up in Italy, all I had was video. So I studied everything. I studied every player. Then once I came back to the States and realized I wasn't going to be 6'9", I started studying Michael exclusively. Now, I was not the biggest fan of Kobe Bryant when he came on the scene, in part because of those comparisons to Michael Jordan. As growing up as a loyal Bulls fan, there is not another MJ. There is no heir to the throne of his heirness. No one can compare. And then I happened to see this video. They're just a standard that's above in all cases. If you electronically switched the uniforms and played know. that at full speed, you would not have been able to tell who was who. This man, when you think about Michael Jordan, the closest to get to Michael has been Kobe Bryant. Can we just agree that these guys are like phenomenal players and let's just move on? We gotta, we gotta do the one-on-one -on -one battle, huh? We gotta do it.
Now, there's a couple of other similar videos out there that you can search up on YouTube with more clips, shot after shot, Michael first, and then Kobe years later. Uh, nearly a mirror image. And did you catch what one of those commentators said in this video? If you electronically switched the uniforms, you would not have been able to tell who was who. Now, what if people were to say that about us? Not about us and, and Michael Jordan or a professional athlete, but us and God or us and Jesus. Now, as we turn to Scripture, we can find numerous examples of godliness and also godlessness. And on Confirmation Sundays, I always like to try to pull an example from whatever testament that the students have been working through. So as I was thinking through and, and kind of rethinking of some of the stories of the Old Testament, uh, I think I found an example of godliness and some ideas about cultivating this virtue that uh, we actually don't have to turn too far from where we were in the Bible last week as Mike leaned into the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel. So feel free to go ahead, your, grab your Bibles, feel free to open them up and follow along so you have the scripture right there uh, as we unpack this. Uh, you might have to flip one page, maybe, from where we were last week to pick up the story of Hannah's son Samuel uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, chapter 3 starts off like this. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Now, I think at this point, most of us would have been pretty excited about what was happening if we were in Samuel's shoes. I think most of us always wished or hoped that we could hear God's voice audibly uh, to us. And so we're probably thinking like, jackpot, Samuel, you have this opportunity. What is God going to say? And we see that Samuel responds, here I am. So we're going to get it, except that we find in verse 5 that it says, he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Now, part of me wants to be frustrated with Samuel in this moment uh, that he missed this opportunity to hear from God. But we also need to remember that the first verse tells us that this kind of thing from God was not a common experience. Uh, in hearing about how Eli was aging, uh, I guess we need to give some credit to Samuel for being quick to respond to Eli, thinking that it was Eli who called him, having not experienced this before. Now, if I were in Eli's shoes, it'd be a different story. I don't know about you, but I am not a morning person. And if you don't believe me, you can ask any one of my coworkers or any one of my family members, or perhaps any of the students uh, from our experiences on retreats. And to be woken up by somebody claiming that I called for them, um, I'm guessing Eli responded more graciously than I would have. But the, then to have that sequence happen another two times, I think at that point I would have gagged Samuel with the belt from my robe. Or as Pastor Mike likes to say, I would have laid hands on him without the benefit of prayer. Uh, so uh, what does Eli do here after this third time? He does what we do sometimes when things don't make sense. He blamed God. Okay, well, maybe not quite the same way we do in frustration. Eli, in his wisdom, realizes what's going on. Uh, and especially in light of verse 7, where we learn that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, Eli directs him that he's probably not hearing from Eli, but from God. So when this happens a fourth time, Samuel is ready to respond this time. He knows what to do. He lets Eli sleep. Praise the Lord. 
and I guess most important, he opens himself up to receive that message from God. Now, this message affirms the prophecy against Eli's family that we see uh, in the previous chapter. Eli's family will atone for the sins of his sons, which we can find in detail in the middle of chapter 2 if we look back a little bit, where they misuse their positions as priests for their own gain. Continuing on in chapter 3 here, the following morning, once everybody is up and moving, this time we find Eli actually call for Samuel this time. Uh, And Samuel wasn't super excited to bring what he had heard from God to Eli, but when Eli asked, Samuel shared the truth, even though it was a hard one. And this is how chapter 3 concludes. It says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So, what can we learn about this virtue of godliness and cultivating it in our own lives from this short account of Samuel? Well, as Dr. David Jeremiah puts it, uh, he says this, The more you're with Christ, the more you want to be like him. The more you study him, the more you'll emulate him. The more you love him, the more godly you'll become. That's, and, and that's a good, nice, concise way to put it. But let's unpack that a little bit more in light of what we learned from Samuel's story. Now, one of the first things that Samuel had going for him in this story uh, was Eli guiding him through his journey. Eli was there to support, encourage, uh, and direct Samuel towards God. He was there as a model for Samuel to look at at what it looked like to be in relationship with God in his own life. Now, obviously, Eli wasn't perfect, and nobody is, but when it comes to learning to what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, one of the best things that we can do is look to somebody who knows Jesus better than we do uh, and pull up alongside them and learn from them. So find yourself a spiritual mentor. Now, if we were to think about the times of the most significant spiritual growth that we've ever had or the closest that we've ever felt to God, I'm willing to bet that as we look back at those moments, there was probably an Eli in our lives. We might not have recognized it in the moment uh, or even knew, like, to call it that, but I'm pretty sure as we look back— or as we're able to be older and reflect back, that we can see those Eli's pop up in our lives in those significant spiritual times. For me, I think back to uh, some of those camp counselors that I had as a student growing up, some of whom I'm still in contact with. I think of, of working at camp, uh, at Portage Lake Bible Camp, under Dave Nesberg, uh, and the care that he gave and the consistent leadership that he gave to us as a staff, uh, guiding the summer staff Uh, individuals towards closer relationship with God, not necessarily primarily for the benefit of camp, but for their own benefit, and then it benefited camp as like a a secondary thing, and that was kind of a bonus. I think of my dad and the modeling that he's given me uh, as a man of faith, uh, but also as a pastor, uh, and even now being able to use him as a sounding board for personal and practical ministry advice. Now, I think when we think of mentors, I think we default towards people who are older than us, uh, who have more life experience. Uh, But that doesn't mean that our own contemporaries uh, or even those younger than us can't help direct us towards God. They might even have more life with Jesus experience than we do, even though they might have less life experience than we do. 
Some of my closest friends and closest moments in my relationship with God uh, were with peers that were only a few years older or a few years younger than me at camp or in youth group or in undergrad or in seminary. Now, while human mentors are great, if our goal is to be more like Jesus, then the, uh, to have that devotion to God in action, then the best person that we can look towards is Jesus. Here's where that Sunday school answer uh, is correct. Uh, not making you dig any deeper than that. And the best way to look towards Jesus is to study who Jesus is in the Bible. Now, don't miss what Kobe said in that interview that I referenced, that when he lived in Italy, all he had was film. So he watched it and rewatched it over and over and over again. He studied, 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 and then went to put into practice those things that he had learned, those things that he had picked up, that shoulder fake and turn the other direction, until the result was what we saw in that video, uh, an unbelievable mirror image, clip after clip, to the point where one of those voices that you heard was Magic Johnson, one of the other greats in the game of basketball. Uh, and his voice was the one that said, the closest to get to Michael is Kobe Bryant. When we look at that last verse of this section of Samuel's story that we looked at today, in verse 21, it says, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Samuel's journey started with mentorship under Eli, but it wasn't only that. Samuel continued to meet and grow in relationship with God through being in God's word, through studying. Now, the good news for us today is that we have a wealth of information when it comes to study right at the tip of our fingers. Uh, the education and literacy that historically once served as a barrier for people uh, for more than just growing in relationship with God, it doesn't—those things don't stand— uh, in the way for us. Resources like Right Now Media, the plethora of books that you can find online through uh, Amazon, uh, the ranging from things uh, of super light to super deep, deep, of helping us dive deeper into the cultural uh, and historical context uh, of different aspects of the Bible. The ease of access to actual scripture, uh, which we just have carrying around in our pockets, just a couple swipes of our finger on the phone to get to the Bible app. Even through the Bible app, uh, it has reading plans that will set you up with reminders on a day-to-day -day basis. One summer when I was on staff at camp, uh, all of the staff members received a copy of the one-year Bible, which broke the entire scripture into daily reading sections that if you kept up with it uh, day after day, in 365 days, you would have read through the entire Bible. Uh, we've had different growth groups dive into uh, the Immerse Bible series, which is designed to help us read larger chunks of Scripture and uh, to hopefully do that in a distraction-free way. It's not a study Bible, but a, let's look at the larger narrative picture here and help give us that mountaintop view of Scripture, that bird's-eye view to see uh, the themes of the larger story. Now, if you're not currently involved in any of these, a similar type of reading, or a similar type of reading plan, let me offer uh, this challenge to you that I recently heard. Uh, dedicate the next six to 12 months uh, to read through the four Gospels. Uh, choose a pace that's comfortable with you, but start with Matthew, and then go into Mark, and then Luke, and then John. And when you finish John, go back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. When you finish John, go back and cycle again. Rinse and repeat, and see how many times you might be able to cycle through. Now, if you do this, 
as you do this, remember not to confuse knowledge with godliness. That knowledge does not equal devotion. Uh, If you think about it, Samuel grew up under the tutelage of Eli. By default, Eli's sons also would have grown up under Eli, and they also went on to serve as priests. They had the knowledge, they had the book smarts, but they failed to live it out. Their devotion and action was not towards God, but towards themselves. Now, if you do this gospel reading challenge, you will gain knowledge about Jesus. But the third point here is to pray that you wouldn't just grow in that book knowledge, but that that you would grow in relationship with the Jesus that you encounter in these pages. That this Jesus that you meet in these four books of the Bible, that you would invite him out of the book into your daily life. And not just into your daily life, but into all corners of our lives, into our marriage, into our relationships, into our workplace, into our friendships, into all circumstances as they play out in our lives uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, That as you approach these things, these different circumstances as they arise, that you would approach them with the knowledge of who Jesus is and that you would respond in a way that Jesus would in each of these circumstances, that you would be a reflection of who Jesus is in the world around you. These things, finding a spiritual mentor to point you towards God, studying the scripture to know who Jesus is and to know the greater story of God, uh, and then to live in a way, to live that out in a way that mirrors Jesus. All these things are constants in the journey. We're, we never arrive. There is no like destination complete road trip over. These are things that are continuous. There isn't a point where any of us like get it. Uh, We need to continue to work on these things. It's a process of growth that happens over a lifetime. That when people reflect on who we are, they can't help but see Jesus through us and who Jesus is.